So we knew we had a question that nobody was answering for these clients and we knew that they had money that they were willing to spend on it. Hello and welcome to Current Thinking with me, Rob Jones. This is the podcast where I interview thinkers and doers with a point of view. In this episode, I speak to Kat Jones about launching successful products and the story of how she took sharing from an idea to the flagship product at a hundred million pound business. Enjoy. So we had for a long time at Unruly, um, we're working with clients who have an interest in getting a video distributed. So usually this is a brand who's made a video or it's an agency who's working for a brand who's made a video uh, to get it watched by lots of people. So Unruly as a business is about distributing those videos to the right people at the right Mm -hmm. time. So we've been doing that for 10 years now. And so they're saying, well, great that we can see what's most shared and great that you're getting sharing on our videos but how why what is it about the video that is making people share it so we knew we had a question that nobody was answering for these clients and we knew that they had money that they were willing to spend on it so we then were saying right well that's a question that we need to start addressing so that was actually my task about four years ago was right let's see if we can do something with all of this data, we have so much data at Unruly uh, that's proprietary about the way that people engage with video. So it was really, let's just explore this. We know there's interest from clients in this sort of stuff. We know we've got lots of data. What could we do? Mm-hmm. So I uh, prototyped four products, very, very kind of uh, crudely, I guess, if you like. Uh, uh-huh. they, were, they were simple prototypes, let's say. And there were three different products, um, and I initially just sketched them, uh, took them out to our clients. So we we already had access to these people that we thought were going to be interested. So initially, I was able to just sketch some stuff out and take them round and say, you know, is this answering a question? So, so when you say sketch, you mean on paper? Like yeah. Paper? yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a bit of colouring in as well, um, but yeah, just having a basic look. We're thinking about a product that's something like this, and just going to really receptive clients. Um, the people that like to think of themselves as innovators in their agencies or in their brands, um, people that are kind of willing to pilot stuff and get involved in new thinking um, and say, look, we're looking at developing a product around this. What do you think? Which of, Especially it's helpful when you have a few because you very quickly get a sense of, well, which one wins and why does it win? Um, I think having just one idea sometimes is quite restrictive because it means that people say, yeah, it sounds great, or no, well, I'm not sure we'd use it, but it doesn't help you get very much mm. kind of relative reference points. Um, so we had three, and it was very clear very quickly that the data-driven, we're going to have an algorithm that predicts sharing potential was kind of the hook that people were going, well, if you can predict how shareable my video is before I spend any money distributing it, then wow, I'm definitely going to use that and I'm definitely going to use it to decide which assets to promote and how much money to spend on them and what kind of audience to distribute them to so um, there was a lot of very kind of basic prototyping and validation Mm -hmm. that happened before we even started fielding it as a product yeah and so do you think that that's something other people can apply taking a sketch and, and going around and showing that do you need to have um, sort of a, a a very good relationship with these these clients first in order to do that. Yeah, I think it. I think it does depend on your relationship with clients uh, as to what extent you can use people as a sounding board. It's probably harder when you're selling direct to consumer than it is when you're selling to businesses, and especially where you 
ideally it's it's helpful if you have access to people that need you for some reason so where they wanted our distribution product and we were able to say well we'd really like to bounce something off you you know we've got a relationship that they want to preserve there as well so it gives it gives us a bit of grace in terms of very softly trying some of these things out with people that we actually trust their opinion not everybody's going to be in that situation um this is the kind of minimum viable product approach and actually at the time the minimum viable product for us to prove that at least it's a good concept was sketch it out take it to friendly clients we already had the relationships um if it's something that you're kind of fielding to people you don't have those relationships with um you may have to develop something a little bit more functional in order to validate it or you may have to at least develop some positioning for something an advert of some type that promotes your vision uh to see whether you're going to get the kind of responses that you're looking for and you're just trying to get an indication of response at this point yeah um so i think that that kind of depends on what level of relationship you have if you find that you have no relationship with your customers then it might be worth rethinking a little bit about what your product is because generally speaking the best products are done from people come from people who know their customer at least a little bit Mm. and and so the sharing was a you know entirely new product for you um how did you know you were going to be able to deliver you know the answers people were after and actually deliver a product did i mean did you know it at this stage i think we knew that we would be able to do what we were saying so yeah we were only pitching solutions that we knew we didn't know that we'd be able to necessarily do it quickly, but we knew we'd be able to do something. Um, and I think I think that is, well, certainly, so this is the downside of going and having friendly conversations with uh, collaborative clients, is that you, you do have to really kind of deliver on it. If they say, my goodness, this is the best thing I've ever seen, I would definitely buy this tomorrow, and I would show it to my boss and introduce you to all these people then you kind of have to go, right, (laughs) okay, we'd better do that then. So you're a bit stuck if you can't do it. Whereas actually, if you don't have those kind of uh, important relationships, then maybe it doesn't matter so much if you can't do it in the end. Uh, But yeah, we knew we knew we would be able to do it. We knew we had the data and we roughly, uh, we didn't know what our reports would look like. We didn't know what kind of analysis we would be producing to answer these questions. But we knew centrally, we could build an algorithm Mm -hmm. that predicted sharing, which was the central proposition. Yeah. So then what happens next? Um, so you know, the market's interested. Uh, what, what did you do next? Well, we tried to sell it. So we then said, okay, we're not going to be able to sell these sketches of made-up data anymore. Let's actually try this on real videos. Let's get some real data and let's see if they'll put their money where their mouth is. So then, whereas our minimum viable product for um, validating that it was a good idea was sketch it. Uh, our our minimum viable product for validating that we can sell it was no longer sketch it and we needed Mm -hmm. something a bit more robust so what we did there was uh initially we developed uh we we kind of did a bit of a collaboration with a brand where we uh sort of built we we kind of built out what we were thinking um and it was simple you know now a sharing report is maybe 40 slides long Um, of analysis and insight Um, and at the time that we launched it I think we had it on maybe five slides of highlights Mm -hmm. uh, which actually made it easier to pitch the idea initially because it kept it simple and kept it high level and people could see where the central value was Um, 
but with that basically we knew that we needed to actually start with something so uh, we had to invest as a business so Mm -hmm. we put some money aside and we said right we've got all the sharing data on these videos already but we need an algorithm so we need to be able to train to that sharing data some set of variables that will allow us to you know we can test that set of variables for other videos and then predict their behavior based on the relationship between that data and the the real life sharing data so we then had to actually invest in let's go and build that v1 algorithm so obviously Mm -hmm. now the algorithm's trained on half a million data points and there's an awful lot in it when we launched it it was nowhere near that robust Uh, now it's a global algorithm when we launched it it was just in the u.s um so there were a lot of kind of things that we do now that we didn't do at the time because we wanted to do kind of the cheapest thing we could to validate uh, but it's true we did have to invest in order to validate beyond the uh, beyond the initial because it wasn't sort of make a one-off product it was the whole point was we've got an algorithm here so mm-hmm. we knew we had to invest to build that out and that's one of the reasons we spent so much time on the validation phase initially because we were actually validating that we can spend a significant amount of money uh, which we didn't want to do if we hadn't had resounding sort of yes we would buy this from the market uh, so from there we we did we made that investment we gathered survey data for lots of videos on a standardized survey um, we trained that to the sharing um, the sharing data set that we had and we found the correlations that we needed in order to say yep okay this is the way that the variables fit together in order to predict sharing and then once we had that we kind of had an idea of what the rest of the product would look like because we saw hey emotion really matters these are the 18 emotions that seem to matter Uh, social motivation matters here are the 10 that seem to matter Uh, probably want to ask people whether they actually want to share the video as well and maybe we want to ask them whether they want to buy the product and did they remember the brand so there were a few things that we already had in the survey Um, And then once we knew what their relationships were to the kind of final share rank metric that's predictive, we also knew, well, if those are the variables that are interesting, we can then have a graph of that one, a graph of this one, a graph of this one. Mm -hmm. Um, And because we'd invested in building the algorithm, we also had a set of data that we could call a norm for the US. Mm -hmm. So now we have a norm for a sector and a norm for a market. I think when we launched, we probably just had a market norm. Um, but we had enough then to probably it wasn't quite enough to sell, mm-hmm. but it was enough to partner with a brand to say, can we test one of your videos? And we wanted to make sure that that brand would go and present that they would they would at least give us the time for an hour of presenting the results mm. back. So that's not a given that they're valuable enough for them to put five people in a room to listen to our results presentation for an hour. So they did that, and then we wanted to make sure that they found it valuable enough to cascade that internally. And once they did, then we were saying, right, let's make this beautiful, and let's go and sell it. Yeah, so it, it was that sort of initial sale wasn't about them paying you money to, to deliver it it was more about them making a commitment in terms of their investment in, in time to actually look at the results yeah and it was about so yes their investment in time and then we wanted to see that they were going to use this internally so mm. we wanted to see that they they were going to have a value from this beyond it looks cool and is new yeah yeah and then in terms of what the actual product should look like in terms of what they what they get back um, you know, how did you know at that stage what it should be? Was it just you know what what came out of the research that was interesting, or was there was there anything else? 
Um, it was largely what came out of the research. So there was another side to the research that we were doing in parallel with our, well, I guess a little bit before our algorithm build. So obviously our algorithm build was contingent on our survey design and our survey design was contingent on uh, a literature review, basically. So we looked at the science that was already out there about sharing a video and there wasn't much um, and we partnered with some of the academics that had done this and we got advice on creating a survey structure that should capture mm -hmm. the most important variables um, so that was where we started and so so I guess some of our reporting stuff was based purely on the algorithm and there were other things that came from the literature and things that already were known in the market yeah and, and I think yeah I think people can definitely get a a big leg up if they you know, work from what's already out there. Absolutely, and, and, yeah. absolutely. Otherwise, you're just reinventing the wheel, and you're not actually creating anything new or valuable. Yeah. Because someone's already done it, so it's yeah, it's not the best use of your time. You want to use all of the stuff that exists and then build on it with something new and valuable. Yeah, and then so then getting those initial sales, how did you how did you do that? Um, we had a lot of relationships already. Um, with ShareRank, we had to form new relationships as well because a lot of our relationships with um, our kind of existing products were with, you know, they're, they're people that are interested in distribution. And actually, ShareRank is about analysing the video content, so it's a little bit further up the chain. Mm -hmm. So we were lucky enough that we had a pool of customers that could introduce us to people that were connected to their brands mm -hmm. that actually would be in the right department for interest in ShareRank. Mm -hmm. Um, so that that was a nice place to start. We did some outreach as well, um, forming new relationships. Again, we had a good brand behind us, so people were yeah. certainly willing to open our and emails. How, how do you actually convince them? Okay, look, here's this new thing. You should buy it. Like, how do you how do they how do they, you convince them to buy this thing? That's you know, you've done one report, but still as yet really un, unproven. Uh, well, we had a partnership that we could talk about mm -hmm. um, with the initial brand. So we could say this person's used it and they found it valuable and here's a quote. So that was valuable mm -hmm. uh, in terms of onboarding other clients. Um, it was also, it was helpful for us to have had that initial period where clients have been asking us the question. Because we can mm. say, we've had people asking us this question for four years. We can answer it. Uh, the press release says we can answer it. Come and talk to us. Um, and we knew it was a big question and we knew that if we said to somebody, hey, we can answer this question that's been on your mind for four years, then actually they were going to go, yeah, that has been on my mind for four years. How do you do it? And we knew we were the only people that could do it. Yeah. So then you, you've got you know, your initial set of clients on board. You've got you know, some basic prototype. How do you go about delivering that? Is it is it all you know, kind of like one off? Do you then work on your processes? Um, yeah, it's interesting. So again, we had a sales force in market already. So some of our initial sales came from um, me going along to meetings that our sales team had set up, mm -hmm. and then our sales team closing the deal and sending over the paperwork. So actually, at the time that we launched ShareRank, I was the only person working on ShareRank in our company. Um, and I was building our Excel models for what, you know, how do we analyze this data? What do the graphs look like? Um, designing them so that they looked consistent with our branding and, and pretty okay. Uh, putting together the report structure, thinking about how do we communicate the messages and what order the, do the data go in. Mm -hmm. um, 
I luckily didn't have to spend too much of my time selling. I would say I probably spent about a day a week out in market on sales meetings, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have to do too much of the follow-up, which left me time to develop the product. Because you had Um, the sales team. Exactly, because I had the sales team. Um, So I was able to progress the product relatively quickly. Certainly for the first few studies, we were aggressively... we We weren't selling masses of volume initially, Um, And it was launched as kind of a beta period. So we had kind of collaboration from the clients. The clients that were buying um, were keen to give us their feedback as well so that they could build a product that was useful for them long term. So we were kind of running studies consecutively and I was saying, well, here's my prototype based on the knowledge that I already have. I'll build the report will produce that and it's relatively manual I'm kind of graphing this stuff in Excel mm. I could then save those graphs and as long as my data was of the same format I could hopefully drop in the next lot and propagate the graphs that didn't always work as seamlessly as it could have done so there was quite a lot of fixing plus after the first report clients are going wow that bit's amazing I want more of that I want this little bit as mm-hmm. well can you give me that um I really don't actually want to know about that other thing because my client's not going to want to know about that and I don't know how I position it, so maybe just don't give me that at the moment. Um, So we were then able to, for the second report, it would be a bit different to the first report based on some of that feedback and then the third report would be a bit different again. So it was very high touch for me those first few reports um plus you know we've never we're not a survey business we don't have a panel of people so i'm trying to form partnerships with people where we can outsource that work and i'm saying Mm. these are the kind of questions we want can you build a survey for us can you send it out to people um so now all of that stuff's in-house we have our own survey in-house we have our own software we have our own dashboards that visualize all of this none of it's in excel anymore but when we started it was just how can we do this the most the the least manual way that we can mm-hmm. you know in terms of outsourcing it so that it doesn't take too much of my time and I can work on the strategy um, but it was also about what can we do to develop what how can we develop this as quickly as possible so we knew we were going to have to be really flexible mm. and actually if we'd built a dashboard from the word go we could have spent six months building a dashboard then launched it and then found gosh, we really are getting a lot of feedback. We need to pivot and change these things around and emphasize that and de-emphasize this. So being able to not have a dashboard at that point was great because we were doing six months of validation where every time we were developing the product very, very quickly and Excel allowed us to do that and to be really flexible in a way that a kind of more structured solution probably wouldn't have done. Yeah. And how do you know sort of when the right time to switch is from... You know, the the flexible solution that maybe takes more of your time um, to you know some more rigid solution that's going to be more efficient and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think the definite thing that has to happen first is you have to know that your feedback has stopped being a torrent of uh, comments every time where. There's clearly every everyone you're talking to is asking for five different features and they all agree with each other. And when that's kind of turned itself down into a bit of a dribble where the main message is, wow, this is amazing. We can't believe how good this is. You guys are fantastic. And by the way, if we could have this and this, that would be great. Where this and this are sort of smaller things and maybe not everybody's always asking for the same stuff and you know that actually we've got a few different clients, a few different use cases, we've got competing use cases and now we just want to see what are the incremental improvements that we're making here to develop that's the point where you feel we have a robust product that's Mm -hmm. good in market it's defensible we can sell it at scale 
and now we're into incremental improvements whereas for for a while you're in an actual just let's build the product phase yeah. you're moving from minimum viable product to slightly more sophisticated minimum viable product mm-hmm. and you need to move away from minimum viable into something that feels finished and done and ready to go so at that point you're ready to start automating um based on my experience i'd say you wouldn't necessarily start automating at that point because actually investing in automation is a big time cost and sometimes a money cost as well but certainly if you have stuff working with templates in excel it's easy to use those when you sell a study suddenly your templates in excel are kind of working for for what your graphs look like so then rebuilding all of those in a flexible dynamic dashboard you know you want to get there but you also know it's a big job and you need some spare capacity to work on that Mm -hmm. while you're still continuing to deliver so until the team grows a little bit you probably don't have room to continue to deliver the existing service and build out a more scalable solution and and so you mentioned the team growing there um how can you uh when you have the extra you know demand demands growing um you've got uh basically a version in excel or some kind of um more advanced but minimum viable solution um how can you deliver sufficient volume um using that well you just get more people to make sure you can deliver the volume (laughs) so you sell everything you can um Mm -hmm. and i guess you you can throttle so we have had to throttle sales a couple of times Mm -hmm. um where we just have had more demand than we have capacity to fulfill it so um a lot of the time you're able to preempt that so you can kind of see your sales pipe is building and you can see that people in market, you've got more of your sales team bought in, more of them are out in market. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of see where the traction's coming and you can hopefully, in a lot of cases, hire people preemptively. Mm. Um, what's really nice is if you can use flexible people resource. So one of the things that we did a lot and that I would definitely do again if I possibly can with other products would be um, use freelancers. Mm-hmm. So get people in uh, for some of the more I guess simple tasks that need doing especially if you're you know doing data processing or whatever it's usually there is some stuff that just has to happen that's relatively operational, it's relatively similar each time if you're selling a standard product, uh, but in the early phase it's just highly manual. So we used freelancers, kind of had them in, trained them up, and then brought them in as we needed, um, and mm-hmm. we were clear with them, you know, we don't, it's not a full-time role. Sometimes you might be in full-time if we've got four weeks of really busy, and then you may not be in any more than a day a week for the next four weeks depending on the sales pipeline and that's a really nice technique for managing a volatile sales pipeline Mm. especially when you don't have loads of cash to splash around on people that may not be fully utilized so freelancers will allow you to essentially you wait until you've got the cash in the bank before you say let's get a freelancer in to deliver it so you know you're always going to be able to pay them what what you need because you're only booking them for the time Mm. to deliver the client projects and and how can someone go about finding freelancers? Uh, we found that friends and family was a really good way to do it. Uh-huh. Um, so it depends. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends who you know. But I certainly found lots of people in my network or in my family's networks that were able to um, that were able to kind of come in and. Uh, freelance because they had just graduated or because they were students and they were looking for some part-time work um so often it's 
easy to start there. And then there are lots of sites that you can use to find people. So there's Elance would be one example mm-hmm. um, of places that you can just try people out and see if they can do simple tasks well. Then you can kind of bring them in and see see how you want to work with them. So there'd be lots of ways to do it. And I would suggest don't don't try and get a different person every time unless you have something that's really simple mm-hmm. um it's always worth finding a good freelancer training them up to what they need to do and then sort of using those we've had some of our freelancers for like two or three years um mm-hmm. just on a sort of as we need it basis and some people that works really well because they've got other things they want to be doing maybe some of them are starting their own businesses um so it's really handy to be able to get the cash but not mm. all the time and to be able to say no to work if they want to yeah and how have the challenges uh, that you've faced um, sort of changed as, as Sharing has evolved and grown? So, yeah, I'd say early on it was a lot of, it was product development, it was talking to customers, and I still talk to customers, but certainly at the beginning that was most of my job. Most of my job was talk to customers, and then probably a little bit less of my job was build out what they're, what they're asking for. Um, and just really understanding the space and what the product needed to be. Um, as it grew, then I had an automation challenge and a resourcing challenge. So how do we how do we scale the team? Um, discovering that freelancers worked for us was a big win. Mm-hmm. But obviously, then we do have a baseline of consistent, repeatable work. So getting really high quality people in mm. who can be with us from early on, who can help me to manage the freelancers, manage some of the project based stuff so that I can get back onto strategy. Um, that kind of stuff is is then a challenge. Um, once you move through people, it's actually, yeah, how do we automate this stuff? What's the best solution? Scoping out the solutions for that. Um, by then, I had a couple of people extra who were able to help me scope out solutions. Uh, then we were going global. Um, so we were saying, okay, now, you know, Sharing started in one market. I think now we run in 14 markets, something like that. Um, a lot of them not English language, so how do we deal with all the translation issues that we need to uh, work with on having lots of surveys? Who are the translators? How do we, when we don't speak Japanese, how do we verify that our Japanese translator freelancer is actually good at Japanese? How do <laughs> um, you? So we, we tend to use multiple um, freelancers and they independently translate and we spot anything that's kind of inconsistent and mm. then ask them to comment anonymously on each other's work as as to what's uh what's kind of a yeah you could say it that way and what's a well that's just wrong mm-hmm. um and over t- you know once we've done enough of those we kind of have a good feel for the people that we rate um so yeah finding those guys finding panel providers in our case for different markets um, making all these new relationships um getting the paperwork in place uh, all of this stuff um there's just a lot of scale related challenges and then with that come more people and then you get all the people management stuff Mm -hmm. so actually before I started um, before I started Sharank I had only ever managed three people I think Mm -hmm. uh, and only ever two at the same time so actually for me going from that to managing a team of like seven people which is what my team is now I've got four open roles at the moment learning how to hire people that are excellent um how do you run that process how do you write an interview how do you give people effective one-to-ones how do you make sure you're managing their personal development and taking them where they need to go 
while also taking your product where that needs to go and using the people that you have in the best places as new roles open up, mm. you know, and being able to say, actually, we had some freelancers who then went into permanent roles as project managers and then some of those were able to move into product roles because they were a bit more technical they were interested in some of the product innovation stuff when we had more space for people on the product side we could say oh actually this person is a lovely fit for that role and we can then look for a new project manager potentially from our freelancer pool so you kind of have this uh, journey and making sure Mm. that you do have a dynamic team that's got flexibility for people to move around um, and it allows you to identify opportunities for developing the team in a way that you might not if you didn't already have people that could fill that. You know, you wouldn't necessarily objectively say we should have this role, but if you've got somebody and you think, actually, they would do such a good job in this role, and that role actually could work really well for us. Um, so there's a whole host of different challenges at different points. And and what's been sort of, for you, what's been the best part about sort of creating and growing sharing? I think that we have a product that is one of our flagship products at Unruly now. You know, this is this is the sexy stuff. This is stuff mm-hmm. that everybody loves to talk about. When our sales team go out, this is where they can say, we're, we're thought leaders, we create all this science, and we, well, we don't create the science, we, we know the science. <laughs> uh, we've discovered what the science is behind this stuff. Um, that's that's pretty that's pretty cool hearing people talking about this stuff as like one of the most exciting things that we do um and hearing people outside of our company talking about it as one of the most exciting things that we do um that's pretty valuable and then i think the other thing is just is building that team and building a team that works exceptionally well together that's formed of really high performing people that are flourishing uh in the team and seeing that as the product grows the team grows and both of them are getting better and better and better is mm-hmm. really exciting. That's, that sounds really good. And in terms of the biggest lessons that you've learned from the, from the whole experience, you know, what are they? I would say one of them is, oh, it's back to simplicity again. I said this one before. Um, but I think this is one of the big challenges for people who are starting something up or trying to create a new product it's really tempting when you've come up with this amazing idea that it does all these things and isn't it amazing to do all these things and that's just the last thing you need when you're starting it off. You want to strip it back and say what is the one thing that it does that I can communicate really clearly that I know is highly valuable to the people that I'm selling to. What's the one thing? And if you can't do that, then don't do anything else until you can do that. Um, I think that's that's the big one. Um, and and then it's about validating that and always validating just the next thing that you need to validate. Um, so you don't you don't go. You know we now have a global product. We have a huge, you know we have a huge kind of pipeline. We have actually three sub products built off ShareRank. Uh, they're running globally. Um, we've got loads of people excited by it. Loads of clients reasonably sized team all of this we didn't go straight to that we started in one market with one very stripped back version of one product that did one central thing that was predict how shareable videos will be mm-hmm. um so really i would say stripping it right back to that and then once you've stripped it back to that work out what the next what's the absolute smallest next thing you need to do to prove that you're on the right track or to find that you're not and to change so that you are on the right track 
um, so that you are just validating, is there a need for this? If there is a need for this, are people using it? If they are using it, would they pay for it? How much would they pay for it? Try out a few different price points. And then once you've done all of those things, then you kind of start again with, okay, so now we want to develop this in some other way. So again, let's go back. What, what out of all the potential features, which one is the big one? And then will people use it? Will people pay more for it? Do they need to pay more for it? Or do we get the value some other way? Um, and kind of go step by step by step and just the minimum that you need to do at any point to validate your assumptions. Yeah, and, and, and how do you know whether, you know, okay, you say, okay, I think this is the thing we should do next. How do you know whether that is the minimum or whether it's too little or whether it's too much? Well, usually if you do too little, people are going to tell you that you do too little and they're not going to use it, they're not going to pay for it because it's not a complete solution. Yeah. I mean, some of it's common sense. You yeah. know. But do you, do you burn bridges there if you do do too little? Or? Well, yeah, that's where the common sense comes in, I think. I think as long as you have... Either you have a lot of common sense or you have somebody on your team or somebody you can access that has a lot of common sense. Um, I would say this is where having somebody on your team or often if you don't have a team yet or I mean even for me now um, my boss is a big sounding board for me so Scott the CEO of our company um, he's got a perspective that I don't have I'm in my product and I'm in my team and I'm doing this all day every day so actually I'm not always the most objective person and I'm not always able to see if I go really high level really big picture what's the minimum I can do here? And sometimes I do end up saying, well, I need to do this with all of these features. And Scott will go, hang on, do you? You know, can't you just do this? And I mm-hmm. go, sometimes, no, actually, Scott, I can't do that because <laughs> of all this. But often, oh, yeah, I could do that, couldn't I? Um, so talking to somebody who you respect as an outsider um, to validate your opinion and to see if they can strip it back at all, um, is a really sensible thing to do before you take it out to people that you might want to sell to at some point. Yeah. Um, because it just makes sure, at least even if they say, well, no, it's not ready for me to buy it, at least you don't look silly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that even just explaining something uh, you know, to somebody who is listening, you can, you can see a lot of any, any potential flaws in your thinking as well, just yeah. at that point, without them necessarily even saying anything. Yeah, absolutely. And... In terms of the mistakes that you see people make when they want to start a new product, what are some of the bit the biggest ones? They build too much without validating it in the meantime. Uh, so they don't have a kind of process of validation, check, 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 change it, check it, change it, check it. Um, they don't do that. They They have a relatively complicated idea. They build the whole thing by investing either money or their time often you know they'll take six months off build this whole thing then try and sell it then find it's not really selling and then not necessarily be close enough to their customers to know why it's not really selling and there's so much complexity in it already could be anything about it that's not selling whereas if you just build kind of one thing at a time and you validate each time you can clearly see where it goes wrong if it goes wrong and then correct for that as you go so you're only ever investing small chunks of time or money to get you to the next place. Yeah. And um, are there any resources that anyone can look at to learn more about this kind of approach or or anything? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so the one that I'm recommending quite a bit at the moment um, is a lean startup, Eric Eric Mm -hmm. Rees. I don't know if you heard me say that clearly. It's lean startup. 
Um, and this is a book that talks about, I mean, this is like an Eric Ries trademark approach as the minimum viable product approach and how you can do that. Um, I, would, I would really recommend reading that book. Okay. And, and then is there anything else that if, if someone's got, you know, the, the concept or the idea um, that, and they wanted to, to, you know, push things forward, what can they go out and do tomorrow? Well, if they haven't already got a customer persona stuck to their wall, I would say do that next. Um, so if you have your product idea, so sometimes people do it this way, um, you get your product idea first and then you think, now who can I sell that to? So that's quite a tricky place to start. Um, so I would say go and work out, if you know what your product is, now you must know who your customer is and you must know it really well and you must tightly define who your customer is. So draw draw them, um, find out really what do they care about. This isn't just, oh, this is someone in this kind of job who's in probably in this kind of age range. But what, what do they do at the weekend? What do they care about? What kind of language do they use? What are the things that excite them? Know all of these things about your customer and then the next phase of that is go and work out exactly how your product resonates with them or which one bit of it resonates with this customer and if you can't think of anything then your product probably needs a bit of a tweak before you take it out but as long as you have if you have that customer persona on the wall it will ground you and make sure you keep coming back to who's my customer yeah yeah and I, I think um, it can be tempting to say oh no everyone should mm. buy our product mm. um, how do you how do you really drill it down to you know, who who that customer profile what that customer profile should be it depends where you're starting from uh, I would start from the base that it should absolutely not be everyone mm -hmm. uh, because you can't make an effective product for everyone um, so even if you know your aspiration is everyone will use this at some point great but take that as at some point and for now choose the subset of everyone that you would find easy to sell to uh, mm -hmm. a subset that you know maybe you're part of that group uh, or you're very close to someone who is part of that group. Certainly, if you're not part of it, you have access to people in that group of that profile. Um, if you're if you're saying your custom your products for everyone, I mean, in some ways that's quite nice because it means you can choose any group <laughs> uh, because it's all a subset of everyone. So choose the group that really that you really understand profile those people and then go back to your product and say what does my product need to be to work for these people and then that's where you start and then maybe it maybe it grows out of, out of that group from there but uh, you need to know your customer to make sure that you have a product that works for them before you go wider yeah and and I also think that having really specific groups or a group in mind um, is really helpful for when you come to think about other challenges like sales and marketing. Mm. It's not just how do we reach people, mm -hmm. it's how do we reach this specific group and then you might realise, oh, okay, uh, there's this this other organisation that would be really good for us to partner with and go through or yeah. something else. It really helps make things concrete. Yeah, absolutely. Great, thank you very much. So, with sharing, you've done a lot and you've achieved a lot. I guess one of the important things must be, you know, sort of an ability to, to, to make things happen. Um, what do you personally do in order to get stuff done? You protect the time. So you make sure you have time to create value on a regular basis, i.e. every day if you possibly can. Um, so I do this, I have a few tools that I use to do this. Um, 
One is I have a day where I work from home, which is really helpful because just having the block in your calendar for that day that says cat working from home, uh, people just don't always read what it is and they tend to avoid meetings because there's colour in your calendar, certainly if you're in a place where people can see your calendar if they're scheduling internal meetings. So it means that I have a day where I don't have to go to too many meetings and I can dedicate that whole day to developing my team, working out what they need, working out what I need to do to support them better um, and making sure that I'm making progress against the product and against you know sales and marketing strategy if we need to do something different. So it's, it's that time to come to a really high level and I think it's helpful to have if you can a day where that's your focus for your day is to look at a high level at everything that you're doing Mm -hmm. Um, then I would say complement that by protecting an amount of time every day so that you know that every day that you are alive you're doing something that is getting something done Uh, so it's not just replying to emails it's creating some value Mm -hmm. Um, and I do that by blocking time in my calendar again uh, so that it, you know, it looks like I've got a meeting. Then that's my time that I'm going to do X task, which will uh, get me further towards a goal that I'm working towards. And making sure that you do that every day. I mean, it's good for making stuff happen. It's also good for how you feel, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it means that you know that that day I actually did something that I can be proud of, rather than I I know I replied to lots of emails, but I couldn't tell you what that achieved. Yeah, and changing tack um a little bit um is there anything you've uh, purchased or, or started doing recently that's sort of really improved your life <laughs> i have started walking to and from work every day unless the rain is torrential um mm-hmm. which has been good i mean it's not it's not too far it's about two and a half miles um but it makes a big difference to the way that i feel when i get into the office it makes a big difference to the way that I feel when I get home from the office as well it gives me the space to just give myself time for me Uh, and sometimes I'll listen to an audio book sometimes I'll just walk and think Uh, but it gives me time that's not in the stuff at home and it's not in the stuff at work it's just kind of consolidation time I think it's a bit like sleeping you know when you hear Mm. sleepings when you sort everything out in your subconscious and I feel like the walk is when I sort everything out in my conscious (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Um, And are there any books that you've been recommending a lot recently? Oh, yeah. So I mentioned mentioned one, which is The Lean Startup. So I'm partly recommending that because I'm actually um, off on maternity leave uh, in a few months. And I am kind of getting my team ready for high level. Let's think high level. Let's think strategy. Let's make sure we're always everything we do is driving towards our goal for what we're working towards right now Mm -hmm. let's not do anything that's not getting us there so that's a great book for them to read and for anyone to read who's trying to think more like that um the other one that i am recommending a lot actually in real life is um a book by daniel kahneman Mm -hmm. uh, which is called thinking fast and slow and that's about the way the brain works the way people make decisions it's about system one system two um activity I guess so your system one is your unconscious instinctive uh, response Um, maybe you don't even know what you felt but this is your system one reacting to stuff Um, and your system two is the more thought through conscious effortful processes that go on when you're thinking about things Um, and the book just discusses how people how 
how people make decisions, um, how we can think about the system one, system two responses. I'm recommending it because we just integrated, oh, this is one of the things I didn't tell you we've done recently with ShareRank. Um, we've integrated lots of biometric technology now. So where we used to just have panel responses, tell us what you thought, which is quite system two, we now have a suite of biometric tools that allow us to just record people's facial movements when they're watching a video, say, uh, which is recording their kind of system one. So they can't always tell us that they felt in any way anything that would make them smile by the end of the video, but we know that they did at 23 seconds in. We know they smiled because we watched them smile uh, with our technology on on the webcam. That's all opt-in, by the way. We're not doing that mm, without mm. anyone's permission. But yeah, we, we're um, that stuff's interesting. So that's actually the reason that I'm recommending that book at the moment. Is It's a super interesting book. I'd recommend it anyway. Um, but it's particularly helpful now for clients and salespeople who are wanting to know, you know, where, where does this technology add value? Yeah. And yeah, I'll just add that, you know, even if you're not in in the same field, you know, that you're in, that it is a really interesting book. It is, absolutely. Um, and also that, you know, Daniel Kahneman, uh, an absolute leader in the field, so... Nobel Prize winner. Yeah, really, really knows his stuff. Um, and it's not just some, you know, pop science book by, mm. a, by a journalist or something like that. Mm. Um, and how about podcasts? You've been listening to any podcasts recently? I haven't yet got really hooked on a podcast by mm-hmm. a podcast um I actually tend most of my listening is audiobooks mm-hmm. um so I've listened to lots of audiobooks recently so one that was really great was The Next Billion by Paul Collier so this was kind of related to uh my master's I guess so it was actually mm-hmm. on the reading list for my master's mm-hmm. um but it's got a good narrator if anyone uses Audible or other audiobook apps um I would actually I would really recommend reading it it's about uh, did I call it the next billion? You did, yeah. Uh, I meant to call it the bottom billion. I'm getting confused with the conference that I spoke at, which was called the next billion. Um, so the book is called The Bottom Billion, and it's about uh, the the bottom billion as defined by Paul Collier. So the people that are um, least advantaged in the world economy and society and um, what, what we should be thinking about, um, particularly from a kind of political point of view uh when we when we talk about the problems that those people face yeah and and having also uh actually listened to the book as well um i just add that it's you know it's an incredibly interesting book just for anyone i think mm. uh one of the things that i especially in, enjoyed about it was his discussion around the the different traps that lead people to or lead peoples and countries to stay uh in poverty um, so things like uh, being uh, a landlocked country um, mm. with poor neighbours because it means you can't trade with others. Mm. Um, so, yeah, definitely definitely worth a, a read or a listen. And then if you could have a billboard anywhere, uh, where would it be and what would it say? <laughs> I would uh, loosely interpret the concept of billboard mm-hmm. and I would say that a, a really great billboard that I would like to have would be the homepage of people's browsers mm-hmm. so that when they open their web browser they are immediately presented with my message and my message would be a featured video every day so this is one of the things that I think you know when I when I'm in 
giving presentations or talking to people or like when you know when I'm at home with my family and I say have you seen this video and they say no and I say let's watch it now and everyone goes oh that was so great you know we didn't know that that video existed but that was really nice and we really enjoyed watching it so I would say um just featuring a video you you know it's not auto playing you can click to play it uh, but it's a topical video right now people are watching it people are sharing it um, and it's a really good video, so it would be, you know, curated a different video every day, and people can watch it, and it will give them a lift, or it will show them something important or something relevant. Um, and I guess this is a long answer, but I guess in parallel with that, I would be working with. I already do some work with um, social causes, so uh, people that are, as I said, a bit of my research is about this, but how can you use video to further social objectives? Um, so I would do some more work with those guys to ins- hopefully persuade more people to create video about social causes and things that are relevant that people should really be knowing about. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would be, an example would be Richard Curtis's Global Goals campaign when the Sustainable Development Goals were adopted in September. Um, so just for people who don't know, what are the Sustainable Development Goals? So these replaced the Millennium Development Goals uh, in 2015. And they basically that's the end of the tw- Millennium Development Goal period. So yep. the Sustainable Development Goals were adopted as the next global agenda for eliminating poverty, essentially. Um, and and who, who is it that's adopted these goals? The global community. Uh-huh. Um, so this was a, a conference where um, world leaders were getting together and buying into an agenda for change, and mm-hmm. that that was the agenda for change that was that was adopted. Um, and Richard Curtis, who is the director of Four Weddings and a Funeral, um, and he has basically taken a year out and gone and created a campaign around this, which is um, it was. It was get his objective was basically get a billion people to hear about these goals within a week of their release, um, and he did this using videos and he did I mean he did tons of stuff he did. Like, did, did they achieve it? I think they achieved half a billion, uh, which is pretty still, pretty still good. Quite yeah. <laughs> um, and he had lots of campaigns and initiatives. So he had a, a lesson, um, a lesson about it that he was aiming to get into lots of classrooms around the world. Um, but one of the things was video and one of the things about video was social video. And we worked, I, I was talking to those guys about, you know, what type of social video strategy might they want and um, how could we, you know, we we get involved with causes in actually distributing the videos as well across on Unruly. So we're supporting that as well. Um, that's a long way to say I would work with videos like that and people like that to try and feature important messages as well as feel good videos mm-hmm. in my uh, billboard takeover yeah. of people's home screens. And did you get to speak to Richard Curtis? I didn't, no, not personally. But I did get a nice email from him that was, you know, probably sent to lots of people that worked on the campaign. <laughs> yeah. Kat, thank you very much. This has been uh, this has been really interesting um, and you know hopefully really valuable uh, for, for lots of people as well. Where can people go to find out more about you? Find out more about me, um, Google Cat Jones Unruly. Uh, uh-huh. would probably be a good place to start. So there, there are quite a few things that should come up there. I think there are videos of some of the presentations that I've done at different events, um, interviews that I've done with journalists, that sort of thing. Uh, and then wanting to know more about me to the extent that you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter, at um, Cat R. Jones. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rob.
Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more from Kat, be sure to check out the previous episode in which we speak about giving killer presentations.